0: Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Struggle Podcast, I'm your host as always Steve Hall and today I talked to Milo Wolf. he's currently pursuing his PhD in muscle growth which is awesome, he's also got plenty of muscle growth, he's a natural bodybuilder, he actually competed at the WMBF the same time myself and Pascal did last year and came in with a great package actually, very conditioned, lots of muscle mass and he's only going to be pursuing more through his research and he actually recently was the lead author on a meta-analysis and systematic review that looked at partial range of motion versus full range of motion for outcomes such as hypertrophy and strength. We dug into that. And it's super interesting stuff, as you know. I've already talked to Eric Helms. Maybe you listened to that episode before. And this just delved into that area a little bit more, and what the practical take homes are for you as maybe a practitioner, or a coach, or even a trainee yourself, and how that might influence your exercise selection, or maybe how you are performing certain exercises. And it's just a really interesting area. And I look forward to more research that Milo is going to be performing, and what that leads to in terms of practical outcomes for us as people that are just interested. Interested in maximizing our muscle growth. I won't blab on too much more. Let's get into the episode. But before we do, just as a reminder, at Revive Stronger, we provide online coaching. We are very proud about our online coaching because it is personal to you and we make you the center of our attention. So if you're interested in trying to get jacked, build some muscle, lose some fat, maybe you want to step on the physique stage, or just do a photo shoot, anything in between and you're ready to really commit, definitely have a look at our online coaching and we'll set up a consultation. But without further ado, let's get into the chat with Milo. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, and today I've Milo Wolf on the podcast. You may have heard of Milo because he's been on some of the biggest podcasts within our little kind of bodybuilding evidence based niche recently, and I'm happy to have him on here as well. You haven't lost your voice so far, Milo. <laughs> still able no, I'm to talk. Still good. I'm still good. <laughs> and I know you've invested into even the Shaw sure podcast mic, so you're you're kind of uh, one upping me here because I I definitely haven't spent that much on this mic. <laughs>
1: Yeah. To be honest, it was a long time coming. Um, I had a snowball before. Yes, I had that. That was my first mic. Same, same. And, uh, I was like, I'm gonna going to be on podcasts. I have clients that I do check-ins with and so forth. So it's just worth the investment, I think. Yeah, no,
0: for sure. And I've actually met Milo in person twice. We met quite a long time ago at the, uh, renaissance periodization revive stronger kind of get together and seminar that was all before like the covid happenings and uh, so we hadn't been able to do one for a while but then we also managed to meet last year in person and i saw a lot more of milo than i'd ever seen before uh, because he competed in the the weird spot of natural bodybuilding and i mean fundamentally the physique you brought to stage was really good i know i don't know if you've reflected further on it but i know you weren't overwhelmingly happy with the end result but how do you feel about it now
1: and I think for a first-timer, I did okay. I think I have a decent amount of muscle mass overall, but I also have a big frame. Um, Conditioning-wise, you'll always you'll always wish you brought more. You know, I think even if you get quite, quite diced, you always feel like there's more. And I think in my case, it definitely was, given I was a first-timer and everything. Um, but for a first time, I'm pretty happy with it. And now I'm just looking to build some more in a few years, return back to stage, hopefully much improved.
0: And you were fully self-coached to stage as well, weren't
1: you? That's correct, yep. yeah, 100%.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I again, like I said, you only need to check out Milo's, which I'll link it below uh, Instagram. You can see some of the stage photos, but it was a very competitive class and like the physique you brought to stage was very impressive. And I think, if you had done several shows and maybe some qualifiers at other federations i think you would have fared very well and you would have call off you had a, a final worthy physique i would say so i'm excited to where you're going to take it and uh, some of the research that Milo's been doing which is why i've principally brought him on today it's not just to have chit chat is to talk about the phd he's been pursuing which is in muscle growth uh, which is really cool it's i mean you're literally the perfect guest i was just thinking about it like getting his phd have you got your phd yet or you're you're still working
1: Man, I wish. I'm on my final yeah. study of the PhD. So hopefully in a year or so, I should have it.
0: Amazing. So, I mean, you're a PhD student, and obviously very well educated. I've already listened to you on like, I don't know how many podcasts you've been on now, but I've been listening on virtually every podcast you've been on now and you speak very well, which is awesome uh, because I mean, you need that uh, to be able to kind of, you know, I mean, you have people in research and then they can't necessarily pass it on to the lay person or the, the rest of the population so it's great that you're able to do that so well and actually I actually have to give you a lot of credit because I think it's very easy and I, I was actually going to introduce you as the, the ROM guy because that's like your handle now and it, it made me think of Brett Contreras as the glute guy and uh, I think it's the way you've represented the stuff you've been researching which is exciting I think you've always been really careful to tell people like the the reality is this isn't like game changing this isn't overwhelmingly going to like change all of your lives uh which i i really respect
1: yeah so this is the part where i'm going to sell out and say actually range of motion is everything <laughs> everyone's been telling you uh for range of motion increases your growth by 200 no but on a serious note i think oftentimes it's difficult as a science communicator and also as a coach right like we're making our livings off of coaching and what have you. It's difficult to keep things in proportion. It's very appealing to just blow it out of proportion so that you can, you know, portray yourself as being more knowledgeable or having some sort of secret and so forth. But in reality, a lot of the things different coaches do differently are only going to have a pretty small impact. And I think you need some integrity to be upfront about, hey, you know, I think certain strategies we'll discuss soon, I'm sure, might have the potential to increase muscle growth but they're not going to revolutionize your games, And you're certainly not an idiot for doing otherwise.
0: Yeah, I think that's really well said. And it, it's hard. Me and Pascal have talked about this along the improvement season about revive stronger. And it's like, maybe we're not as big because we don't like we don't sell anything like sexy. It's kind of like we preach the basics and it's like, well, lots of things work. (laughs) And it's like, we don't have the the secret answer and the silver bullet of which obviously what we're going to talk about is. uh, And that is, well, actually to talk about the study then and to dig into that, you investigated partial versus full range of motion and you did a systematic review and meta-analysis. And I I just read over it recently. And I was just interested to know kind of what led you to want to do that. Because I know that it was actually in 2020 when... The the last one was. So it wasn't even that long ago, but even already your outcome and findings were different to what happened there. So I'd love to hear about that.
1: Yeah. So to be honest, right now, not only is range of motion very in vogue in the industry, like I think a lot of people are talking about it, talking about muscle length as well, but formal academic research is also in vogue. Specifically, as you mentioned, in 2020, Brad Schoenfeld performed his systematic review on range of motion. And then in 2021, actually, a group of researchers did a meta-analysis on range of motion as well, specifically only on strength and hypertrophy. So right now, a lot of interest. And I think I even saw that Brad Schoenfeld shared an email of acceptance for another meta-analysis. So everyone's oh, over Disney. it right now. <laughs> Indeed. Um But yeah, so we basically I'm, you know, my PhD is about range of motion and hypertrophy and strength. And so I was interested in meta-analyzing the data for a couple of reasons. One at the time of me starting it, which was a while ago, these things take a while. Um, there wasn't a meta-analysis out on it yet, and so while okay. there was a system- systematic review, with systematic reviews they have strengths. Like for example, you know you miss out on certain methodological differences between studies if you're only looking at the numbers. Uh, so you might not be able to evaluate the results fully if you only look at the numbers. But at the same time, if you only look at it from a non-quantitative perspective, so you sort of systematically review it, but you know you look at the results and everything you might miss out on variances or other um, stats that might influence the final result. And so oftentimes when you're looking at something using a systematic review versus a meta-analysis, you come to different conclusions. Plus the existing data, systematic reviews, meta-analyses, et cetera, had only looked at strength and hypertrophy. And I thought since a lot of these studies also measure jumping, uh, cycling power, sprint durations, and that sort of stuff, I wanted to include that because... Some people out there do care about that stuff. Might not be us, but you know. Anyways, so that's what led me to do it alongside it serving as a good foundation for my PhD. And yeah, we got started, collected some data and we analyzed it. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a sec.
0: Absolutely. and um, Yeah, I mean, it's, as someone who, I'm my prime interest, I've never gone into research or anything like that. So when I think about, I hear about systematic review, I hear meta-analysis. And I think as a practitioner, I'm like, Both of those are like very good source of information for me to take guidelines from because they look at a whole lot of data. But I wasn't so uh, into knowing the difference between the two and the fact you could combine them and obviously that would be even better. So that makes a ton of sense to why you would go into there. And out of interest, before you went into this, I guess you're uh, maybe, no, you went into it before those had come out, but I guess the systematic review was there. Did you go in with a pre-bias of
1: where you thought you'd end up? Yes, definitely. Uh, so I started my PhD when I was 20 years old, a couple of years ago, and that was only about a year after I, uh, came to the seminar with UNRP. and Um, and so in general, my line of reasoning very much ran the same as, um, RPs or the evidence-based fitness community as a whole, which was that a full range of motion was best for hypertrophy. And so part of me thought that even if I were to conduct studies on the topic, my findings would largely mirror what was already out there, to my understanding at least. Um, and the reason why I still wanted to do a PhD, in spite of the fact that I was reasonably confident I knew where I was going to go, was because there were only about six studies out at the time. Um, so in Schoenfeld's systematic review, there's four studies on lower body and two studies in the upper body. And the data in the upper body wasn't very clear. One study showed benefits to four-range motion, one study didn't. And in general, there was basically no data in females, like very little. Um, So there were some gaps in the evidence, and I thought that my PhD could help resolve those. Um, So my bias going into the PhD was very much, I think full range of motion is probably better, but it's a topic I'm interested in. It's a topic that could use more evidence, and I'm happy to do my part for the evidence, and also because I wanted to do more sports science, essentially. Awesome.
0: Yeah, I think uh, anyone listening and anyone on reading it I imagine will also come from that bias of full range of motion especially I mean mike and jared and charlie and obviously the, the listeners will be aware of those guys they've all been on the podcast several times like they are team full rom uh, all incredibly jacked and like mike in particular and jared obviously they are in the scientific field and incredibly smart individuals so kind of put part of that team full rom and i think part of it was also formed as a bit of a joke and like it wasn't a serious thing but i think a lot of people just think full rom clearly better i think a lot of the listeners will be thinking that and certainly that was like my bias so kind of reading into it and I mean we had so many studies come out recently it's kind of crazy like you said it's very popular right now and we actually dug into a lot of those with eric so i don't know they'll probably pop up in the conversation throughout this discussion i don't know if you listened to the one uh, that only just came out of eric but um i said i was bringing you on to dive into it even more so i'm trying to kind of come in from a different perspective but if you want to talk about what was the, the findings you had uh, from the paper and yeah what how is that then actually yeah just talk about the findings
1: So we did a lot of different analyses. And shout out to my supervisor, James Steele, for being a wizard with stats. I know a decent amount, enough to understand what he did and everything and take part in it. But he did a bulk of the work. Um, So we did a lot of analyses. Uh, We looked at a variety of things. A lot of the analyses, because you're looking at only certain parts of the data, there's just not enough data to make firm conclusions, right? Like we looked at the relationship between range of motion and adaptations when factoring in height, for example. And for those analyses, there's just enough data, just not enough data to really make a good conclusion as to how height impacts that relationship. Like whether when you're taller, range of motion plays more or less of a role or what have you. Um, And, or there's just not a difference. So a lot of analyses we performed, either not enough data or just not a big difference. But for the analyses we did that are relevant to, I think your listeners, First, we took the data as a whole, right? So we took every data point across every type of outcome, like strength, muscle size, body fat, sport outcomes, like um, sprint speeds or jump height, and also power outcomes, like how quickly you could generate a certain amount of force. And across all outcomes combined, there was a trivial effect in favor of four range of motion compared to partial range of motion. That means that if, you know, you've got a person come to you, um, you don't know what they're training for and you have to advise them, like give them a range of motion to train with, eh, four range of motion is probably better, but very by a very small margin. Like so small that most people probably would even care about the difference in, in results, right? Like the same person you could tell with a partial range of motion or four range of motion, the difference they, they'd see between those two approaches would be so small that they probably wouldn't even care for most, for most people, right? We might be different, however. Um, so when you group results by categories, for example, muscle size, power, sport type outcomes, body fat, strength, and so forth. In general, once again, trivial to at most small effect sizes. However, all effect sizes, so whether it was a power outcome, whether it was a strength outcome, a muscle size outcome, directionally favored a full range of motion, which means even though a full range of motion might, have, not, might not have been much better in terms of how much of a difference it made, it was still better than the partial range of motion. So if you want to hedge your bets and you care about small effect sizes, you might want to do a for range of motion. Now, when you look at these outcomes on a more granular level, so looking at smaller aspects of them, you see different results. So for hypertrophy, for example, when you divide partial range of motion interventions into being performed at either short muscle lengths, like the top of bicep curl, right? Like your biceps are quite shortened, you've got a peak contraction and everything, that's short muscle lengths into either short muscle lengths or long muscle lengths, like the bottom of a bicep curl, where your biceps are quite stretched out. When you divide partial range of motion interventions into those two categories and look only at hypertrophy, the following picture emerges. When a partial range of motion is being performed at short muscle lengths, like the top of a bicep curl, you're just doing the top part, basically, that doesn't seem to be as good for hypertrophy as doing a full range of motion by a small but probably meaningful effect sizes to most people. On the other hand, when that same partial range of motion is being performed at long muscle lengths, so when your muscle is stretched out, when you feel a stretch like the bottom of an RDL, the bottom of a squat, the bottom of a bench, it seems like doing a partial range of motion there instead of a full range of motion may actually be superior to a full range of motion for hypertrophy. So it seems, at least in my view, as though a full range of motion is only superior to a partial range of motion when and if it includes long muscle lengths or includes them to a greater extent, which also in turn means that if long muscle lengths are so important for hypertrophy, we may actually get more overall hypertrophy if we exclude short muscle lengths altogether by doing partials at lower muscle lengths. Now, that's a conclusion I'm not 100% 100 sure I want to back fully yet. I'm open to experimenting with partials of long muscle lengths or even isometrics of long muscle lengths. But for now, I think at least for the more conservative or more risk-averse trainee who wants to optimize hypertrophy, I would say including some long muscle length work whether that comes from selecting exercises that emphasize long muscle lengths or whether that comes from doing partials or isometrics of long muscle lengths. I think including them makes sense, but if you're risk of us and you're a bit skeptical of some of these findings, especially considering there's not a ton of data for some of these, like again, for hypertrophy now, I think we have seven studies comparing partial range motion, so not many. Um, So you might want to err on the side of caution and include them to an extent, but don't make all of your training long muscle length isometrics, like dead hangs and uh, dead lifts against blocks, what have you. For strength specifically, the main finding I found interesting, but also quite intuitive, was that strength appeared to be specific. Not just strength, actually, performance outcomes as a whole. So that included power outcomes, sprint outcomes and everything. When performance outcomes were grouped into emphasizing different ranges of motion, like, right, let's say, for example, a partial range of motion squat on 100 max, that's inherently gonna be an advantageous test for the people who train the partial range of motion because they actually train that range of motion directly and more so than the other condition, which was doing a full range of motion. So they spent around like half their time outside of that range of motion that actually mattered for the outcome. When you group performance outcomes that way, you see that whenever you train a certain range of motion, like for for example, a partial range of motion or a squat to parallel, you tend to see greater gains in that outcome, like the squat parallel, than people who did a full squat, for example. So strength does seem to be specific. So if you want to be stronger, faster, better at a certain range of motion, some of your training, if not most of your training, should be in that range of motion exclusively. There might be reasons why you want to use other ranges of motion. Like for example, you know, for a powerlifter in the off-season, muscle size development might be quite important, in which case you may want to emphasize lower muscle length slightly to aid with that in the long term but for the most part being pretty specific with range of motion for performance outcomes makes a lot of sense i think that's about it those are the main results i think so yeah
0: awesome yeah no very well explained and i guess in in some way it did fit with your bias in that you found four-inch motion was in most cases superior to partials but for hypertrophy and then even for strength was specific, which I guess if you, maybe you weren't as, when when I asked you for your bias, you're probably thinking about hypertrophy anyway. You probably would have thought like powerlifters perform their lifts in a specific way because that's specific to our outcome and probably is superior for that. So that makes a ton of sense. But yeah, it's that kind of stretch, the long muscle length and that kind of stretch under load, which is, I guess if someone had told you the outcome of this before you started, you'd be like, ah, I see, like, as I'm listening to it, and as it came out, I was like, oh, this is, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I could see how that could have occurred. And yeah, was it, I think there's two studies specifically, there might have been more than this, Milo, but these are the two that come to mind, was where they compared kind of the end partial range of motion to the beginning partial range of motion to a full range of motion, and that was the leg extension and the preacher curl. Was there, has there been any more apart from those two, or are those the only two so far?
1: Yeah, so as you mentioned, the leg extension one's been the main one. Um, there hasn't been any other ones, but there has been a lot of other data that's pertinent to this question. Yeah. So in the discussion of the paper, and if, by the way, if you're interested in any of the other analyses, they're all in the paper, it's open access. The link will be in the description, I'm sure. Um, no. yeah, it will be. <laughs> so a lot of other data, for example, there are six studies now comparing the same range of motion. So for example, doing 50 degrees of elbow flexion or a bicep curl, um, but doing that same range of motion at different muscle lengths, there's six studies comparing that, right? So, for example, a partial rep done at longer muscle lengths versus shorter muscle lengths. So I'm sure any, everyone's seen two studies specifically, one on the triceps with either a push down or an overhead extension, which functionally was the same range of motion in terms of how many degrees of elbow extension they went through. But because the shoulder was in a different position in the overhead condition, um, the participants had a more of a stretch on their long head. And the other study was the leg curl study, which came out like a year ago, I think, where they either performed seated leg curls or lying leg curls and seated leg curls, by virtue of your hips being flexed, place three of the four heads of your hamstrings in a more lengthened position. And so essentially one condition was doing the same range of motion in a more lengthened state. And the other condition was doing the same range of motion in a more shortened state. And so there's been six studies total to that effect, I think, uh, one in the hamstrings, two in the quads, two in the biceps, and two in the triceps, or something like that. I'm pretty sure that's roughly a split. Overall, five out of six studies find that doing those partials at lower muscle lengths produced greater hypertrophy. One of those studies found no difference. So, And the interesting thing is, uh, so one of those studies that found no difference was on the tricep. Another one also was on the tricep, but that study did find a difference. So it's not even clear that there's like a muscle group that doesn't respond because something I've been hearing a lot around the industry nowadays is, uh, oh, the arms don't respond to stretch-mediated hypertrophy, or what have you, um, which I don't think is the case. There's also data on isometric contractions. So contractions where you know, you're not moving at all, muscle length stays the same. Like for example, a wall sit where your muscle length doesn't change, you're just sitting there essentially. And across three studies measuring hypertrophy and performing isometric contractions at different muscle lengths, performing isometrics at lower muscle lengths seems to produce greater hypertrophy, and that was the case in all three studies. And then there's other data, which I don't consider as pertinent, but it's still kind of relevant and reinforces the broader point. One of these bodies of evidence is the interset stretching data. So there's been a couple studies now, I think recently, relatively recently, on stretching between sets, and generally it does seem to enhance hypertrophy adaptations. And then the final body of evidence is very obscure, but it's like old school studies on stretching out like bird wings, for example. And seeing hyperplasia which is the addition of new muscle fibers instead of hypertrophy which is the growth of addition of individual muscle fibers um and also recently i'm sure eric helms probably mentioned this because it's his favorite study nowadays um (laughs) yeah exactly that one so i I won't go into too much detail but basically they gave an orthotic device to people for six weeks these people were uh, recreationally active or athletic so they were involved in sports but not really lifting much um that device was stretching out one of their calves for an hour a day for six weeks at a sort of moderate intensity. And they saw pretty robust hypertrophy, right? And because the calves are actually a muscle that I think would be reasonably well-trained, even in the absence of too much lifting, as a result of, you know, you use a lot of walking. If you're recreationally active in sports as well, you might see some hypertrophy as a result of jumping around, sprinting around and so forth. So seeing substantial hypertrophy in that muscle might mean something uh, in terms of how it relates to Emphasizing long muscle links in training, but again, that's not where I'm drawing most of the the evidence for from for this conclusion. It's mostly from okay, we have four range of motion versus partial range of motion, we have partial range of motion versus partial range of motion at different muscle lengths, we have isometrics, at different muscle lengths, we have interset stretching data. So overall, uh, you know, a lot of data in favor of long muscle lengths. So I think it's worth considering if your aim is maximizing hypertrophy. Yeah, I think it's, uh, like you
0: said, it, it seems a bit strange to say some muscle groups wouldn't respond to it. I think the picture's being painted that every muscle group seems to be responding to it. And I unless there's an inherent reason, some muscle groups are just different and muscles are different somehow, and they're not going to respond to it, it seems everything's falling in that, that line of thought as well, because it's not like the chest has been directly studied, but they did do the chest stretching, kind of the intercept stretching, and that seemed to do something there. And I don't know if this makes you think of something I also think too is obviously like muscle damage and obviously kind of training at long muscle lengths. People just think of Romanian deadlifts or straight deadlifts. They get crazy hamstring soreness. And even like doing seated to lying leg curls, You can, if you do match the sets and the RAR and everything, you probably find yourself at least initially getting more sore from the longer muscle lengths. And a lot of things that seem to be very hypertrophic, in terms of like, I don't know, novelty or kind of pushing overload, trains of failure with lots of volume and like in isolation, very hypertrophic, seem to lead to a lot of muscle damage. And this also seems to be one of those things that leads to a lot of muscle damage. I don't know if, so if those all kind of apply to basic like muscle groups and physiology, it seems likely that this is going to apply to the muscles that haven't yet been looked at, but
1: I imagine they might be looked at at some point. Yeah. So the super interesting thing here is that we actually have several studies on the arms. You know, the arms keep getting brought up on as, uh, oh, they might not respond to stretch mediated hypertrophy. We have two studies on the triceps and one on the bicep comparing different partial ranges of motion. Well, the same partial range of motion at different muscle lengths on hypertrophy. And out of those three studies, two studies found a benefit of lower muscle lengths. Um, so like... I don't know. I'm all for theorizing about mechanisms as to why certain muscle groups might respond differently to certain interventions. But ultimately, if we have direct evidence measuring hypertrophy itself, and it doesn't align with our hypotheses or um, hypothesized mechanisms, first of all, I'd much rather take the direct direct evidence over the mechanisms you're suggesting. Um, And second of all, if that is the case, maybe we should reconsider the mechanisms we're thinking of, you know?
2: Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with a the plan? Then get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome we help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue no matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level our coaching is for you it's time to make a change sign up today and let's revive stronger
0: yeah actually i guess um One of the things people probably bring up about the tricep study from Mao, where it was the overhead extension that led to more growth. I don't know if you've had any more thoughts on it since I think you talked about it on the Data Driven Strength podcast, where you talked about kind of what your thoughts were on the fact that every head seemed to grow more, even though they weren't necessarily lengthened more in that position, at least we wouldn't expect them to be.
1: Yeah, so I don't really have too many thoughts. I think the effect sizes in that study were pretty large and the fact that the effect sizes were similarly large for the long head versus the medial head versus the lateral head. So, for for context, they saw an effect size of about uh, I want to believe I want to say 1.3 at least. That's what they reported in favor of um, longer muscle lengths. So, the overhead condition for the long head, just like for the medial head and lateral head, which doesn't make any like it doesn't really make any sense with the model that we have. At the same time, though, you know. If that were the case, that somehow placing one of several heads of a muscle under greater stretch would lead the other heads of that muscle to also grow more, we should see a more consistent body of evidence regarding that. But there are six studies, as I mentioned, and that's the only study of those six that had anything remotely similar, right? Like the leg curl study, nothing like that in the short head of the hamstrings that doesn't get more lengthened and see the leg curl. The bicep study, nothing. Uh, the other tricep study, which is actually the only study that didn't find any difference between lower muscle lengths and short muscle lengths, also nothing. So personally, I am happy to, I wouldn't say dismiss it because I don't want to dismiss the study altogether, but because overall the body of evidence is so compelling, it's something I'm willing to just say, eh, might be a fluke, right? Especially in sports science, where we don't have a ton of participants. We don't have very powerful data sets because we don't have enough people. The designs aren't always super well controlled and so forth. One study can easily find uh, a random chance outcome, you know? Um, So I'm happy just dismissing it as that and leaving it be for the time being. But if more evidence comes out in that direction, it's definitely something I'd be willing to investigate more closely. But for now, we just don't have enough data to say why that was. Yeah, I think that's absolutely
0: fair enough. I think it's, again, like there's not enough data, but you don't want to ignore it. But it's like, what's the point of spending a ton of time thinking about it if we can't think of a a reason for it just now. So that's absolutely fair enough. And something actually that I found very interesting, you talked about passive tension. And I know this was something that was going on within kind of the industry for a period of time. I think it's still a thing that people talk about is like staying within an active range of motion. So like on a leg press, you don't come so deep that you're kind of, I don't know, you might just lie back on the leg press, bring your foot back as far as you can without loading. That's a essentially how someone might measure in a rudimentary way of my understanding an active range of motion for that kind of joint in that exercise. And that going into passive range was potentially injurious or something we wouldn't necessarily want to do. It seems that passive range of motion is part of this kind of getting into this lengthened position. Where does that, where, what are your thoughts surrounding that kind of subject matter?
1: Yeah. So I think the injury area of research is interesting because those claims are again very mechanistic. Like we don't have any studies comparing directly, at least to my knowledge, um, injury rates training with a greater range of motion or specifically at greater muscle lengths versus shorter muscle lengths. The best we can probably do is look at um cross-sectional studies where they, you know, ask powerlifting athletes, strongman athletes, weightlifting athletes, bodybuilding athletes, and so forth how often they get injured, and then draw up rough rates of injury per ten thousand hours. Trained for that sport. And that's not really compelling evidence. And neither is mechanistic rationales, in my opinion. Like, one thing you can argue is that when you're training a muscle at very short muscle lengths or very long muscle lengths, you might see an increase in pain experienced in people who already have an injury. So, one thing I'm aware of is again, shout out to my supervisor, James Steele. He did his PhD on uh, lumbar extension for people with low back pain. So basically, they were training their lower back using a lumbar extension machine because they had pain already. And we wanted to see, well, they wanted to see how that would improve symptoms. And one thing they saw in that, for example, and that was referenced, was that it seems as though training at very long muscle lengths or very short muscle lengths might cause a flare up in pain or be more painful than training through the sort of more, I guess, active range of motion a lot of bodybuilders nowadays refer to as such. So if you already have an injury, maybe you might find it more painful to train up very long muscle lengths or very short muscle lengths, right? Um, which is, I think, pretty... Which holds true anecdotally pretty well. In terms of being inherently more injurious, I'm skeptical. Um, on the whole, I think caution might be advised, especially when you're first incorporating these longer muscle lengths. But ultimately, I think most people's long muscle lengths are constrained by their mobility rather than anything else. Anyways, like, for example, the squat sure you're achieving pretty long muscle lengths but most of the time if you're also if you're leaving your heels on the ground the whole time you're not really going to achieve long enough muscle lengths at least compared to everyday function and everything um plus in general like lifting has very low rates of injury compared to most team sports or like running for example so even if there was a relative difference in injury rates it would still be pretty small and one thing you see again and again in whether it's powerlifting injury research, like for example, Greg Knuckles and Stronger by Science five years back or so conducted a survey in powerlifters asking them, okay, how often do you train each lift? What intensity? What rep range? And so forth. And oh, are you injured? Where are you injured? How long has that been going on? Do you train around it? And basically what they found as well is that powerlifters are pretty often injured, but they just train around it and it's usually fine, you know? So even if there is a slight difference in injury rates, I'm not sure how meaningful it is to most people's training, especially with hypertrophy training, right? Like, there's ten different squat exercises you can do and get a really good hypertrophy effect out of it. Um, it's possible, I think, to get back to your point about fatigue earlier. Though you said maybe initially training at lower muscle lengths might cause more muscle damage, like RDLs, for example, really mess you up. Um, there's two trains of thought here. One is that long muscle lengths are inherently more damaging. It's possible, you know, like maybe training at lower muscle lengths with the greater tension you achieve, passive tension. Um, means that it's inherently more fatiguing and thus the SFR, stimulus to fatigue ratio, is actually pretty similar to just doing regular training. It's possible. One hunch I have, or at least maybe I'm just biased at this point and I've I've bought into long muscle lengths. Uh, One bias I have is that it might be in good part due to the repeated bout effect. So for those who don't know, the repeated bout effect just says in this context that as you repeat a sudden stimulus, like for example, RDLs to a sudden depth, right? As you do a certain session several times, the muscle damage and concomitant soreness you experience gradually decreases, right? So first session, you might get really sore. Third session, quite a bit less sore. By the time you're deadlifting for the 10th session, it's going to be a notable decrease from the first session. And so I think in a lot of these studies that maybe find greater muscle damage or soreness following lower muscle length training, it may just be due to novelty. So that's why novelty as well, I'm sure, you know, Dr. Mike Isretel said it before, I'm sure you'd say as well, when you're first incorporating a new exercise, you want to start off easy, maybe like a couple sets only. And that's because initially you're going to get quite sore out of that exercise and you don't want to do five sets and cripple it yourself for a week. Um, so I think with fatigue as it relates to low muscle length, that might be the case. I also think regarding passive tension, um, it's unclear whether in these studies, right? Like These studies reportedly use a four-range motion in one condition but oftentimes how full is a range of motion really, right? Like just with training to failure in research, a lot of people often like raise an eyebrow. and like, hmm, did they really train to failure? Um, and with a full range of motion, often in these studies, it's not a full range of motion in the context that a lot of people in the gym, especially listeners here might be thinking about. It might be like, Oh, a squat to parallel roughly, instead of like a squat with your ass cheeks, touching uh, your heels, you know? Um, so it's not clear whether or not the passive tension itself is at play, and whether or not passive tension even increases meaningfully as a result of training at lower muscle lengths. That's one thing I brought up to to uh, Greg Knuckles. I was working on I am working on an article for Stronger About Science with him on range of motion and muscle lengths. And one thing he brought up was that passive tension probably doesn't increase a ton within the ranges of motion we're talking about in these studies. Like there's just not that much more passive tension squatting, say, to parallel potentially. Compared to squatting like halfway or two-thirds to that depth. And so the mechanism why long muscle lengths are inherently good for hypertrophy is kind of unclear. But for the time being, what I would want to say is they're probably better for hypertrophy. They may be more fatiguing. And whether or not they're more injurious is still up for debate. No, that makes that makes a ton of sense.
0: And um Yeah. Something I'd been thinking about within that in terms of like the longer muscle lengths and the shorter muscle lengths, probably some people, apart from that kind of stimulus to fatigue ratio, some people might be thinking about regional hypertrophy and do they need to train it like a short muscle length to be able to get that? Do they not get that from training at long muscle lengths? So like doing your spider curls and your incline kind of seated dumbbell curls, where does the research
1: kind of line up with that? Yeah. So to be fully transparent, we don't have much evidence there. I'm actually doing a study right now on the calves specifically. So I'm doing a partial range of, well, my participants are doing a partial range of motion with one calf and a full range of motion with the other. And I'm measuring calf hypertrophy at different muscle lengths. So at the more proximal, AKA closer to the origin point and more distal, AKA closer to the insertion point um, muscle sites. So hopefully that study should help to answer that question, whether or not different ranges of motion target different areas of a given muscle group. There's not much data out there for the time being. Uh, so, for example, we performed a subgroup analysis and meta-analysis, which you can see in the, the paper, um, comparing the effects of full versus partial range of motion on different muscle sites, whether they're more proximal or more distal, and seeing whether, okay, maybe a partial range of motion typically trains your proximal quads pretty well, but maybe you're, not your distal quads, right? and so maybe you're getting more growth at the distal quad by doing a full range of motion. The data we have just isn't that abundant, but from my systematic, so the analysis didn't really turn out to have a compelling result, I think, because the variance is enormous. So like, if you look at the 95% credibility interval, because we used Bayesian statistics, it's quite wide, which means eh, probably don't be too confident in the exact effect that we're seeing. But as far as my systematic reading, because I also did a systematic review, obviously, as far as my systematic reading of the literature is concerned... (sighs) My hunch for now is that a 4 of motion provides relatively uniform growth, right? A partial range of motion at short muscle lengths provides pretty good growth at more proximal sites. So, for example, for the quads, that would be closer to the hip. So a partial range of motion at short muscle lengths, like the top of a leg extension, probably grows you pretty well near the hip. But when it comes to closer to the knee, so more distal sites, it probably doesn't do as good of a job as either a 4 range motion or as partials at lower muscle lengths. And from my reading of the evidence, and this is something I'm quite cautious about here, like I'm not super confident on this. From my reading of the literature, both a four-range motion and a partial range of motion at low muscle lengths provide a pretty uniform stimulus as far as growing the whole muscle. That doesn't make much sense intuitively, as you might expect, like, you know, you might think, oh, you know, um, during different parts of the range of motion, different parts of the muscle are m- most active, So in order to get a uniform response across the muscle, you know, even growth everywhere, you would want to use a for range of motion. But in practice, I'm not sure that applies. And that might just be to do with the mechanism by which training at long muscle lengths is superior. It's just not something that we've elucidated yet. But it's something I'd be interested in in the future. And I think it's something that we need to return to eventually with more data.
0: Yeah. Again, very well stated. And I'm interested in that calf study as well. I guess it will be really interesting. And I know I actually heard you bring it up on Dave McConey's podcast and how the different insertions of people's calves and like the length of the muscle is just like crazy different. So uh, yeah, I can imagine like you, we inherently know that, but when you're measuring people up front, you're like, oh man,
1: unlucky guy here. <laughs> yeah. I get some people in the lab where they're supposed to be like 50, 70% of muscle length they just don't really have a calf anymore. They just have like a <laughs> thin line of gastrocnemius just sort of going along. And I have to try my hardest to measure it. But I'm like, you know, I can just measure this as zero at this point, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so calves are the insertion points change wildly person to person. Like people with smaller calves wind up having bigger calves further down their tibias than people with bigger calves sometimes because of the insertion points just varying a ton. Um that's, I think, reason one of the reasons why people don't usually conduct a ton of studies on the calves because they're quite difficult to measure with an ultrasound because, you know, insertion sites vary a ton. But I think it's it's an, a useful muscle group to test a relatively sterile questions in. And by sterile, I mean you don't need a ton of ecological validity. So right, if you're investigating a question that applies to powerlifting, you probably want people who are power You probably want to train the exercise they actually care about, not single leg, leg extensions, right? Um, But when we're talking about range of motion and regional hypertrophy, for example, that's quite a uh, a niche and I wouldn't say mechanistic, but quite a niche and specific question to answer. It's not directly related to what people do in the gym. And so in those sorts of questions, using a muscle group like the calves that people don't usually train. And so you can easily study with more people in the study. That can be helpful for designing studies, right? Because you get more people in, you have more data, strong conclusions, and they can answer a question that sure, the the answer might not perfectly translate into the real world as a result of it being quite sterile, but it at least provides a strong rationale to build from, you know? Yeah, for
0: sure. Even thinking for myself, like there's not few times I would want to give up any part of my physique towards like a study, but calves, fuck, I probably would just because it's like, well they grow so slowly and i mean if you're dave not growing at all (laughs) uh and who knows if mine are growing at the moment uh something actually in relation to the kind of passive tension was the question of how long is is there too long of a muscle length can we just kind of try and stretch muscles and kind of contort ourselves in exercises to get them as stretched as humanly possible or is there yeah is there a length that is kind of appropriate and how do we go
1: about identifying that as a trainee? Absolutely. I think each person has to come to their own conclusion with this one. Um, And that conclusion really depends on why you think training at long muscle lengths is productive to begin with. If you think it's primarily productive as a result of increased passive tension, for example, and passive tension increases pretty much linearly or pretty continuously with increased muscle length, If you think that's the case, and that's why long muscle lengths are better for hypertrophy, you may just want to train at longer muscle lengths almost no matter what, right? Obviously, if you're repeatedly getting injured, maybe then you should take the hint that, hey, this isn't for you. Um, But if that's your rationale, honestly, I think training with the longest muscle lengths you can, and that's usually constrained by practical considerations, anyways. Like, I haven't met many people who can stretch their quads out so far during a squat that they get injured more consistently, because usually their ankle mobility is limiting them. Same with um, their triceps oftentimes, right, or other muscle groups. On the other hand, if you see absence of evidence as not meaning evidence of absence as far as injury is concerned, right, like just because we don't have strong evidence or really any evidence, to my knowledge at least, um, that low muscle lengths are inherently injurious and you should not go that far with them. If you don't think that um, absence of evidence means there's evidence that that's not the case, then yeah, you might want to be more conservative. Would you be missing out on any growth? I would say potentially. Uh, It's possible. But at the same time, just to reiterate, um, I can't reinforce this enough. The effect sizes we're talking about here are relatively small. So even if you're to train with a partial range of motion, say at moderate muscle lengths, or even at short muscle lengths, yeah, you'd probably see less results for hypertrophy, but you would still see some decent results, especially if your bigger picture variables like volume, reps and reserve, frequency, in general, just consistency with sleep, stress, etc., are on point. You would still see pretty good results. So, I think it comes down to your risk tolerance and also what your what your understanding of muscle length and hypertrophy is and the mechanism behind it, and also whether or not you think absence of evidence means evidence of absence.
0: Yeah, I think that's very well said. And yeah, it's uh, I almost shared it on my story yesterday. I wanted to have this chat with you before I shared it, but it was the c- quoting, that the differences were trivial to small. And I was just like, like people are really, really interested in this. Yet, and I think unfortunately it's kind of like supplements. They look at creatine or I don't know, whatever supplements coming out and they'll be like, well, the effect size could be so tiny, but they're so focused on that. Like someone might listen to this, or all my training is going to be long muscle lengths or whatever. But that, like you just said, the fundamentals of these other things behind the scenes matter so much more. So even if someone's listening and they're like, I'm getting pretty good results in my training. Do I need to like really change too much? It's like, you probably don't, which I think is really great that you bring up every time that you come up on a podcast. It's like, it's not a game changer. It's very, it's cool, exciting for us nerds, but, and it, especially for us people getting more advanced and have heaped a, a ton of muscle and we're trying to get every little bit we can. But for most people, it's it's not something that they need to focus a crazy amount on at least.
1: Yeah. As much as I talk about range of motion and muscle length and as much as it benefits me, that it's currently in vogue. Uh, otherwise I wouldn't be on this podcast, I think. Um, it is, it's a small effect size and I think it's worth keeping it in proportion and in context here, um, I think it's worth experimenting with. And at the very least, I'm quite skeptical that it would cost you anything like very many, like many training decisions have some cost. For example, you might be going from three times a week training, four times a week training. That's more time in the gym where you have to organize it. And it's the sacrifice. It's at the expense of something else or volume, you know, more volume, usually more time spent in the gym. With range of motion and muscle length training, you know, you might be changing exercises. It's somewhat of a sacrifice, but you'd be training anyways. You know, you're doing the same sets, same time spent training, etc. So I think it's worth experimenting only because of the evidence and because of how little of an opportunity cost there is.
0: Yeah, yeah very well said. And uh, you brought up actually stimulus to fatigue ratio. And I know you're very familiar I don't know if you're still interning under Mike, but you were interning under Mike at some point anyway. So you're obviously familiar with Mike and you came to the seminar and this, I don't know if this is something you use within your coaching, your training, but kind of to select exercises and to help with coaching decisions in terms of maybe rep ranges or maybe even volume kind of um the amount of sets that maybe you want to do for an exercise if you haven't got to this point of kind of this kind of feedback in terms of the pump and kind of the stretch within the muscle the distortion the disruption within the muscle and then obviously the fatigue side like you mentioned that soreness kind of the aches the pains the kind of systemic fatigue cost at least within my experience when I think about exercises that give me great SFRs like it might be that RDL for my hamstrings or it might be like a chest fly or a deep chest press or a deep squat. They're all exercises that are long muscle lengths. When I think about a spider curl, I'm like, eh, I get a bit of a pump. But when I do an incline curl or a kind of Bayesian curl from behind or a cable from behind curl, like I get that stimulus fatigue ratio in the place that I want it to be. So I don't know if you've seen that as well within your own training.
1: I definitely have. And I would say even further, something I've been experimenting with is both pauses and lengthened position. So for example, on hack squats, I'll pause at the very bottom because then you're proportionately spending more time in the lengthened position compared to if you weren't pausing and you know, producing more tension in those positions, You know, that sort of stuff. At the same time, I also wouldn't recommend banding the hack squat. So just to give my take on uh, an ongoing debate sometimes. Um, I will say it's also changed my approach to... Exercise selection for clients. So previously, I was a bit more client-centered or individual-centered, where you know I would base it predominantly off of what gives you a good pump, what gives you a good muscle connection, etc. And what we have to keep in mind with these uh, proxies, I believe they call them, for SFR, is that some of these are reasonably. Quote unquote evidence based, right? Like uh, soreness is probably reasonably well correlated to muscle damage, which is probably reasonably well correlated to overall recovery. But there are several assumptions in place. And for some of these variables, like, um, you know, soreness, that's correlated to an effective exercise, which in turn is correlated to growth. So there's a lot of assumptions in place. And some of these correlations may not be as strong as we'd like them to be. And so nowadays, when recommending exercises, I've stayed a little bit away from basing it entirely or mostly on those individual perceptive things and more so towards, okay, in general, this exercise is likely pretty good. Like you mentioned, RDLs, a lot of tension in length position, quite a lengthened position as well. Those are two things I look for nowadays. So both positionally, you get into quite a long position. Like RDLs, you can get quite a bit of stretch on your hamstrings. And also, you know, unlike with dumbbell lateral raises, you have quite a bit of tension and it's quite a bit difficult lift at the bottom, right? So those two things, I think, go a long way towards making an exercise good for hypertrophy. And so nowadays, instead of basing it purely on those proxies, I base it, I'd say almost 50-50 on being pretty good for muscle lengths, but also making sure that, you know, it's not just that, there's also some pump, some disruption, some soreness and so forth.
2: Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't, though. It's reality, and we know how to do it, and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You'll receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the mini cup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do but the best thing is that you can start whenever you want the mini cup movement is open 24 7 so if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up hit the link in the description below so let's revive stronger together
0: yeah i think that's you've definitely influenced me in that regard too in terms of like uh lateral raises would be an example where i get very good kind of stimulus fatigue ratio from those proxies with like a butterfly lateral raise or y raise with dumbbells like leaning my chest into a bench but equally i get a very similar kind of uh, via those proxies to like a cable from behind or crossbody cable lateral raise but now i'm like well if i'm gonna bias in like they've got lengthened on their side versus these ones don't so I'm going to hedge my bets a little bit more on that side of things. So yeah, I think that makes, that makes a ton of sense. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Is there anything else, apart from the pauses in lengthened positions, is there anything else you've experimented with?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So two things, primarily, one of them is for exercises that don't have a lot of tension in lengthened position. And let's say, for example, you don't have cables, right? You're training at home. For exercises like those, like the dumbbell lateral raise, you might want to do partials and lengthened range. Because if you're doing a butterfly raise, for example, yes, you're getting a full range of motion, but you're still not getting much tension in the lengthened position, right? Like if you take a set to failure with a full range of motion butterfly raise, you're not getting a ton of work at long muscle lengths, and in that situation, it may make sense to do partials at long muscle lengths, so as to allow you to make those muscle lengths actually productive, right? That's one option. That can be, I'd say, mostly effective if you don't have much equipment available that would allow you to train long muscle lengths otherwise. Um, another option, what I've been doing much more so than partials only is a stretch superset, which is essentially you take a full range of motion set to, or close to failure, whatever you were doing today on your program. And then instead of just putting the weight down and resting for a few minutes and going again, you continue the set, but this time doing only half the range of motion usually. And that half of the range of motion should be done in the lengthened position. So that would be the first half of the concentric phase. For example, for rows, that would be the full stretch to halfway back. And for certain muscle groups, like the back, the side delts, the biceps, the calves and abs to a lesser extent, and the forearms, most of the exercises you can perform for those muscle groups, you would fail at very shortened positions anyways. Like, you know, a row, I've never really seen anyone fail a row at the bottom. Almost always they start uh, raising their chest or they start swinging a little bit to get the bar to their chest on each rep. And so, for those exercises, especially for those muscle groups, it might make sense to incorporate this technique to allow you to train those lengthened positions a bit more, because um, otherwise you're missing out on, I would say, potentially some growth. And you know, ultimately, uh, we're we're freaks, you know, like we're trying to optimize everything. Um, we want to grow the most muscle possible, get the most strength, and so forth. And then the final thing is exercise selection. As you mentioned earlier, uh, it seems you have found that. Incline curls work a bit better for you than spider curls. And I think in general, when you have a choice between two exercises, one that gives you a bit more tension in a shortened position and is more difficult there, and one that is more difficult at lengthened positions and imposes more tension there. And the same with range of motion, by the way. If you can either get more range of motion in a lengthened position or more range of motion in the shortened position, I would usually pick the one that has a lengthened emphasis. And I think that I usually make that split around like, somewhere between 60-40 in favor of lengthened and like 80-20 in favor of lengthened. So I, I still incorporate some shortened work just to cover all my bases in case there is something to regional hypertrophy or just for variation. Honestly, like a lot of people train for enjoyment as well and always doing incline curls can get a bit monotone. Yeah. So I think those are the things I'd incorporate.
0: And with the, um, I haven't actually, I experimented it in a load, and I have started to incorporate it in a few client programs. Where I do it, one of the exercises might be like a cable row, do a full range of motion to an RER, and then to a um, 50% of the range of motion, that like kind of beginning portion to an RER. I I didn't, I haven't used it long enough to know how it feels like in regards to. I know what a general cable row feels like, and I like that. How do, ha, have you enjoyed it? How has it felt to you? And yeah in terms of those proxies for stimulus to fatigue ratio, has it felt better on those proxies for you the kind of the, the um, length and partials?
1: Yes, so I would say it has and it has primarily for muscle groups like I mentioned the back, the side delts, the biceps. When I've done it for tricep, for example, I get like two additional reps on instead of 15 because like I'm you know there's a lot of tension and it's quite a difficult lift already in those lengthened positions. so you're quite close to failure in that position already. So it doesn't make much of a difference. I think if you incorporate them there, you can, it probably won't make much of a difference, but for muscle groups, like the back, the side delts, the biceps, it feels like it's supposed to feel, but it's never felt before kind of, you know, okay. like, you know, how with uh, triceps, for example, you get plenty of tension at the length position. It feels pretty normal, right? With the back, you don't, unless you have a prime row, which now I have, which is amazing. Um, you don't ever really get the feel of like, oh, this is a deep stretch. Like in the stretched out position, it's a difficult exercise. And so in terms of pump, um, my muscle connection as well, it feels like it's supposed to. Now, that could easily all just be placebo. But hey, placebo is also an effect. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's true. Um, Actually, I had a question about I've got access to some Strive and Prime equipment so you can emphasize the load in the beginning portion of the lift or in the lengthened position. And I mean, that feels great on like a strive row where i can put it all in a length and position and so when i come short and the weight just completely drops off and i mean it, fit, it matches the kind of the strength profile of the muscle group there so i was interested to know yeah how you were liking those and if you think because a question i had i asked eric he wasn't sure was is it just that we need to train long muscle lengths or is it that we want to emphasize more load in those longer muscle lengths so that would come to like the hack squat if you band it you're still training the long muscle length you're just not having as much load necessarily like you would without
1: unbanding it. Have you got thoughts on that? Yes. So the answer to that can lie on the spectrum. Let's take one extreme example. Let's say you have, if it's only about positionally getting into a long muscle length, right? then a dumbbell lateral raise, for example, gives you some degree of long muscle length on your side delts, right? But there's no tension. So in that example, would you still say that you know, you don't need to emphasize longer muscle lengths under tension. No, you'd say, oh, we still need some tension, right? So we need some tension. At the same time, let's say you're doing isometrics at short muscle lengths. Yeah, technically, or relatively short muscle lengths. Yeah, technically you're not at the shortest muscle length possible, but you have a lot of tension, right? But we still want longer muscle lengths as well. So I think a combination thereof makes sense. And I think based on the evidence we have, because I think on the whole, training for some muscle groups is pretty well balanced, right? Like triceps, quads, chest. It's pretty well balanced in terms of you have some resistance in a shortened position and you have a good deal of resistance in a lengthened position. For those muscle groups, I don't think we need to emphasize lengthened position a ton but in terms of tension. So we don't need to necessarily use like, you know, uh, strive hack squats and only really load the bottom because we already have a bunch of tension in the quads, glutes, adductors at the bottom of the squat. But for muscle groups like the back and the side delts and the biceps where you don't usually have a ton of tension or difficulty there, I think it makes sense to bias it quite a bit. Um, at the very least, I think it's worth experimenting with. And my hunch, based on all the evidence we have, is that at the very least, it's as good, if not better, than not doing it.
0: I think that's, again, well stated. And I've certainly, from the proxies, like you said, like it, it feels better on those stimulus fatigue ratio proxies. And I'm fortunate enough to have some of that kit available. Um, not everyone will, but it does lead me to another thought. In that, when I would do like a barber bent over row or a dumbbell bent over row, I would use a little bit of momentum to help get it to my stomach. And I guess my thought is like, is that now counterproductive? Because am I using uh, to get it, like I'm trying, I'm using momentum to get it up to, to complete a rep, but now should I not use any momentum because I'm not so fussed about trying to get it to that short position? Is momentum I think most people think of momentum as being counterproductive, but in some instances, I found it to help with that poor kind of profile, particularly for back movements like a a lat pull down. If I'm just real strict and I come down, I I can't get it to touch my chest. I can't do that full range of motion. But now is that maybe something where you're like, well, are you using that extra momentum and it's just driving fatigue to get to this arbitrary full range of motion to short? That maybe doesn't matter. I don't know if you've experimented changing any technique, uh, without momentum and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So a couple of things. First, I do think that using swinging likely increases fatigue per set, at least, right? Cause like you're involving your lower back glutes systemically more fatiguing in terms of coordinating muscle actions and so forth. Um, So I think, yes, it's more fatiguing. It is likely per set a bit more stimulating, but I'm not sure the trade-off is worth it, right? Because essentially what you're getting is not much more work at long muscle lengths, but proportionately more work at short muscle lengths. Um, And I guess this really just gets at the question of whether or not matching the strength curve of the average individual to the machine makes sense for hypertrophy. And the evidence we have on that isn't all that compelling, right? Like Honestly, when I was a second year in undergrad, I was all about this. Like, I was like, it makes so much sense. You know, like yeah, I was reading a, an SNC textbook uh, and I was like, if only I could find an exercise that would have me fail a rep when I would have failed at any other point in that rep because my strength curve and resistance curve of the exercise are perfectly matched. But the direct evidence we have on this topic is really not that compelling. So we have, I think, two direct studies measuring hypertrophy when people were doing one of two interventions, same program, same sets and reps and everything but one intervention was doing it with regular machines and one with machines that aimed to match the strength and resistance curves. And in terms of hypertrophy, there were no differences. So within practical constraints, so like, you know, you're not gonna go out and, uh, perfectly, well, most exercises are already reasonably well matched to your strength curves. So it's not like you're seeing a huge difference in strength curve to resistance curve match by modifying those exercises. So for most exercises. I just don't think it's worth the trouble. I think more more so than that, I think it's worth the trouble to emphasize the linking position because we actually have evidence in favor of that, right? And so banning the hack squat to me, yes, you're matching the strength curve and resistance curve a bit more potentially, but you're doing so at the expense of lower muscle lengths, which we have direct evidence on being beneficial. Whereas direct evidence on matching those curves, it doesn't really suggest it's beneficial. So it's kind of, you know, I don't know what the idiom is, uh, putting the horse before the cart, no cart before the horse. There you go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think again, that that's well said. And maybe I'll experiment with, cause yeah, it's a, a conflicting thing for me because I know for, for the cable row, for example, if I use some driver momentum and I, I need to, to kind of get it fully short to, to, to some extent. I'm obviously not doing it like a complete, like Arnold used to do it back in the day and he used to just like swing it around. I'm, I'm doing it under control. That has improved my SFR proxies but maybe it is sacrificing something. So after it's something to experiment with, at least it's given me a bunch of food for thought. And uh, I just want to say, Milo, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, The time has absolutely flown by. I'm sure we could dig into this a whole lot. And uh, like I said, I have no doubt I'll be bringing you back on, maybe to talk about some more research and things. And I actually wanted to, actually that's what I wanted to finish on is two things. Your competitive endeavors, because I have a side interest of that as well. I'm sure people are interested. And I love that, Like I love practitioners who are also kind of scientists and doing it themselves. And then also if what other things you have in the books in terms of future research, apart from maybe obviously you have the calves there.
1: hundred percent. So number one, in terms of competitive endeavors, I think in around 2025, maybe like this is very long-term planning. I know um, I'll probably compete again. I think for now I'm enjoying cooking too much and enjoying the off season (laughs) vibes a bit too much. Um, but I'm focusing on building some muscle and coming back to the stage better in a few years from now. Um, Powerlifting-wise, not really planning on competing anytime soon. Maybe once I'm able to fill out the 105s while being quite lean and I actually feel like it, I'll compete again. Um, But until then, no plans. And as far as research goes, as I said, I'm doing the CAF study right now, which should take like a a full year almost because we're doing three, four, 10-week periods. It's a 10-week study, which is reasonably long by these standards. so that study, and then we're planning on a variety of other studies. So we're doing a study on D right now, uh, D loads looking at how they're used in physique and strength sports. And then another study we're interested in doing that relates to range of motion pretty well is a systematic review on the effects of isometric versus eccentric versus concentric only training, for example. So, you know, at the back of your head, I'm sure you have the idea that. To optimize hypertrophy, we need to use a variety of contraction modes. Like for example, you want to do concentric and eccentric rather than isometrics. Right? Because again, even for regional hypertrophy, maybe isometrics only really focus on one area of the muscle. Whereas by going through a full concentric and eccentric, you reach more different areas of the muscle and overall see more hypertrophy. And that's just like, it's a commonly, it's a lot of meme, not like in the funny way, but like a meme that's at the back of everyone's minds. But it's not something I've ever formally seen reviewed or even tested directly. And so this is actually something Dr. Mike Isretel commissioned us to do half a year back, but it's been extremely busy. Um, So we're very slowly working on that. But it's interesting also because one of the arguments against long muscle length training is, you know, if a full range of motion trains a muscle in different regions, an isometric and long muscle lengths, for example that wouldn't do that right and that would thus maybe cause less muscle growth because isometrics are inherently worse for hypertrophy than dynamic contractions like concentric and eccentric exercise. If that's not the case then that might open the door to use more isometric training in our hypertrophy endeavors and that's really interesting to me and something i'm looking forward to learning more about.
0: Yeah i i am um, i guess i'm mostly in favor of just whatever's going to get us most jacked but isometrics don't sound fun to me uh, at all, but uh, I know actually um, Eric just sent it to me the other day. I don't know if you um, heard the article he brought up, which is basically back, I think it was in the 1960s, this came up and it was like the rage and it never took off. So I was going to read through that, but it's very interesting that you're going to research that anyway, because I think inherently we do think, and I've certainly talked about it, I think I've seen it written down, people generally evidence-based would say dynamic contractions are king. But like you said, we don't have lots of evidence to support that necessarily. So super interesting stuff. And then I know you're also coaching. So I think I wrongly said you're a Stronger by Science coach. Are you your own coach? I'm both. You're actually. both. Okay, so, I rightly said
1: it. Shout out to Stronger by Science for basically they don't have a no, no, no non-competing clause, which means you can coach for Stronger by Science, but also be coaching for Renaissance perization or any other number of coaching people if you want. Um, so I'm both a coach for my own company, Wolf Coaching, but I'm also coaching for Stronger by Science as a sort of contractor coach. Makes sense.
0: Cool. I'll make sure I've got your website linked below. People can go check that out. I know myself and Pascal are on the website, so honored uh, to be on there. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on. I think people have enjoyed this a ton and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you. Uh, but
2: each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within on our little
0: niche it is gonna be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us,
2: ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there, you can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also gonna be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well, we'll start vlogging, we're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey, furthermore they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy
0: and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth telling you how to execute
2: them, kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets.